Let me back up and explain a few things. For five weeks that spring, I had been living in the Westchester, a last-stop hotel in the Tenderloin's rotten heart. I'm not wealthy, but I do better than Skid Row. It was business that brought me there. I was on a job, and so for the entire month of May, I'd been living between a semi-retired prostitute and an unrepentant needle user. We shared the bathroom down the hall. The building had thin walls, and so we also shared every possible sound. Outwardly, we had some things in common. We all had our reasons to avoid the desk clerk. We wasted no money on laundry. The night shift man at the nearest liquor store could have picked any of us out from a lineup. But unlike me, my neighbors probably hadn't pried up their floorboards to plant microphones and pinhole cameras on the ceilings of the tenants who lived beneath them. They didn't spend their nights following whispered conversations, writing coded names in a notebook. My neighbors were more honest than that. In the Westchester, the elevator is out of service and the shaft is full of trash. Syringes and liquor bottles, adult diapers and cardboard boxes from Meals on Wheels. The stairs are dark, but they work. They lead down to a wrought iron gate, which opens to Turk Street. In the mornings, before sunrise, I take the stairs and push through the gate and wander around a few blocks to see if I was being followed. When I was sure that I was alone, and you might be surprised how very alone you can be in the Tenderloin just before dawn, I'd walk toward the Civic Center. I have a two-room office over there, close to the courthouses. Courthouses draw the kinds of people who need what I sell. But for five weeks, I'd only had one client. I was running the clock 24 hours a day. I'd get to the office early and sort through the mail. I'd check my messages and pay whatever bills needed to be paid. I had to keep up with my life, such as it was. I'd call the man who received my invoices and sign my checks. And then I'd slink back to my listening post in the Westchester before first light. That's what I was heading to do on the first Tuesday in June when I pushed out of the gate and checked the cars parked on Turk. I was most concerned about windowless vans. They're the easiest to picture. Joe's plumbing stenciled on the doors. A half dozen FBI and DEA agents hiding inside, crouched around video monitors and talking into radios. But if they were there, I didn't see them. I did a loop around the block, and when I was satisfied that all was clear, I turned west, toward Van Ness and my office. I was halfway into my walk when I saw the car. It was parked on the sidewalk across the street, directly in front of the Refugio Apartments. Not just any car but a Rolls-Royce Wraith. It had recently undergone a transformation from brand new to totally destroyed. I assumed it was an accident and crossed the street to get a better look. Professional curiosity. I was one step removed from the ambulance chasing business. But drawing closer, I realized my initial impression wasn't quite right. The car hadn't been hit from the front or from either side. The car's chrome grille and smoke-gray hood were immaculate. Its roof was caved in as far down as its gold-plated door handles. Lying inside the crumpled indentation was a perfect blonde. She wore a black cocktail dress, sheer and shimmery in the streetlights. I couldn't see any blood except on her left foot, where it had run down the back of her calf and onto her heel.
Her hands were folded across her chest, and her eyes were closed. Her hair was spread in a fan across the wraith's roof. She had an evening bag looped around her right wrist. One foot was bare. Maybe she'd lost a shoe on impact. Her toenails were painted white, like the inside of a shell.